difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Scott Tobias. Tosh Robinson. Genevieve Kosky can't be with us this week because she's taking a double feature of Blowout and Zorro the Gay Blade. On our last episode, we talked about The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's outsized crime film that doubles as an operatic clash between good and evil, featuring two men in strange costumes. This week, we're discussing Joker, the origin story of one of those costumed men. With a look and a tone on loan from the Martin Scorsese who made Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy, Todd Phillips' Joker observes one troubled man's break with reality. Arthur Fleck, played by Joaquin Phoenix, leads a pitiable existence. He's a low-writ clown who can't even hold down a job twirling a sign outside of a going-out-of-business sale. He can't even hold the sign. He lives with his ailing mother, he pines for the single mother across the hall, and he dreams of telling jokes in a talk show hosted by Murray Franklin, played by Robert De Niro. But the squalor of Gotham City chips away at those dreams, and his end at his sanity. And Arthur finds himself turning to murder as an escape, and inspiring others in the process. That's the plot of Joker, which doesn't really tell the whole story. It's a character study of a man coming into his own through violence that began inspiring controversy even before it won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. It may not be a complex film at heart, but it's inspired a lot of complex and often compelling discussions. We'll talk it over after the break. Arthur, I have some bad news for you. <laughs> this is the last time we'll be meeting. You don't listen, do you? You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. And finally, in a world where everyone thinks they can do my job, check out this guy. When I was a little boy and told people I was going to be a comedian, everyone laughed at me. Well, no one's laughing now. You can say that again, pal. For my whole life, I didn't know if I even really existed. But I do. And people are starting to notice. You think this is funny? Is this a joke to you? Murray, one small thing. Yeah. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? All right, everyone. Joker. You know, I don't think we've talked about this film together. I think Scott and I talked about it a little bit when we saw it, but not so much. Um, I talked about it on Pop Culture Happy Hour with our many, many friends. Whoa. Wow. Well, Glenn wrote it, wrote quite a review of that. Oh, film. yeah. Quite scathing. Yeah, the, I was definitely on the uh, positive end of that particular pool of uh, belief about the film. Mm-hmm. Um, am I going to be on the positive end here I, as well? I, I think so. I mean, there's. Th- I find things that I admire about the way this film 
was made and there's the look of it is quite something i mean lawrence sure is todd phillips go-to cinematographer and he does a great job with that i mean admire its commitment to its own vision but it's not really its own vision though i feel like so much of the film is inspired so directly from those scorsese films and i ultimately am comfortable with what it's i'm not going to join the crowd of people saying it's just not a film worth talking about because i think it is worth talking about i don't think it's about nothing but the thing about you know the scorsese films i think there is at least some commentary some distance between depicting this behavior and endorsing this behavior and i think if you ask anyone involved in this film they would say they're not endorsing murder or antisocial behavior or what the joker does in this but i think the film does i think the film romanticizes this and i think it knows it's doing that I just don't know that that, you know, I think I find it ultimately find that so distasteful that I can't, and, you know, the things I like about the film get overwhelmed by that distaste. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm not a fan of this movie and it does cop quite a bit from the Scorsese films you mentioned, Taxi Driver and King of Comedy. But what it misses is the irony that's so important to both of those movies. We talked about it in our segment on Taxi Driver back when we did it that uh, on the show, but like... The thing about Taxi Driver is that it really is locking you into Travis's perspective, and it's that perspective that is quite ugly, but it's such a crucial ending in the sense that we come to realize at the end of that movie that Travis Bickle needs to kill, that he needs to kill, and it doesn't matter to him whether it's a pimp or a prostitute, it just matters to society, and that's kind of the, he ends up being a hero at the end of that movie because society dictates that he's a hero for killing the right type of person, Mm -hmm. but it really doesn't matter to him. And that kind of irony that's so important to Taxi Driver, and so, you know, and and it's just a sense of perspective, too, that Scorsese has is kind of absent in Joker. Joker's a very ideologically confused film. I think it is um, just, like, sympathetic to Arthur in a very straightforward way that is troublesome to me. What do you think, Tasha? I don't think it's ideologically confused. I think you have it exactly right. I think it's very sympathetic with Arthur Fleck. And I think that Todd Phillips claims that it's not are either blinkered, like maybe he just doesn't understand how this film comes across, or disingenuous. And he said so much about the film that I think is disingenuous or possibly just ignorant. This is one of the films where I really want to agree with you and and shut out all extra textuals because I liked this. I saw this film at TIFF. And I maybe liked it isn't the right word. I saw this film at TIFF and it moved me. I walked out of the theater just feeling stunned at what it seemed like it had accomplished emotionally in terms of making the physical and emotional breakdown of this character and his fall into nihilism, his embrace of like humanity's darkest impulses seemed kind of seductive. And it seemed like a very unpleasant maybe uh, message to be portraying but uh, nonetheless I found it uh, sort of fascinating what an argument it made for it and the more Todd Phillips flaps his gums about this movie the less I, I can respect it the more he talks in particular about how he had to make this movie because uh, woke audiences don't appreciate comedies like The Hangover anymore <laughs> uh, the more I see people are really stopping Todd Phillips from making comedies I'm sure oh, God the more I see like 
just a strain of self-pity and poor me-ism and why is the world so mean to me-ism that reflects really badly on what this movie is. Because this movie does have a very strong perspective that's just like, why is the world so mean to poor innocent me? I think that it does embrace, and this is something I've written about kind of extensively. I did, I did a whole piece on how I didn't think that people should write off how compelling Joker's message is to people who feel put upon, to people yeah. who feel bullied. And that that was a lot of the the concern about this being a dangerous film is, yeah. that would, you know, cause incels to riot and and murder and would cause the dead breakdown of society and all this stuff. This feeling that the movie basically says, you're right, you're being put upon in a way that you don't deserve, you deserve better, and it's okay to kill them. It's okay to do whatever you need to do to get back your own against the people who've wronged you. And it's a terrible message, but it's a very seductive one uh, to the the right kind of listener. <laughs> so I'm not going to say that I love this, this film movie. Touch <laughs> no, no. I, what I'm what I'm saying is I I can't say that I loved this movie. I can't say it's necessarily a responsible movie, but I do think that it's well assembled in a like in a visual, musical, uh, emotional way. I think that Joaquin Phoenix's performance is like eerie and unsettling and mesmerizing. I just think that there are a lot of things with this film that are drawing people in a way that it's necessary for us to contend with. I think it's a really interesting flawed piece of art and a really interesting conversation piece, both of which occur in a way that can't make me say I like it, but I think it's well worth talking about. I want to hear a little bit from Keith because Keith has explored the filmography of Todd Phillips extensively. I have. And and so so tell us tell us what how you know the hangover and how due date and how old school and how the GGL and doc how does it all oh God, fit together? Date. Like how do we get a Todd Phillips? So Joker can, movie? can we start with why have you gone so deeply into uh, Todd, Todd I, Phillips? I wrote it well I'm just just you know I just I got a little time on my hand. No, I wrote a piece for the ringer about basically just that. How does this fit into filmography to like where did this movie come from and like it doesn't all fit together there are exceptions here but throughout his career he's kind of returned to this idea of characters who I mean, men in particular who the world's kind of turned against who are like you know kind of like they have dissatisfaction with the world has to offer them and they kind of act out in different ways i mean old school you get someone who's you know a character whose marriage fails and and so he kind of regresses to you know, chaotic frat life behavior. I mean, the one for me, the key text for me is, is um, one that people haven't seen that much. The School for Scoundrels, which uh, John here <laughs> plays basically, you know, a put upon New Yorker who the world is turned against. Everyone's cruel to him. He's a ticket taker, uh, parking ticket enforcement and, and the opening scene involves him like getting bullied out of, of paying to, for the, someone's tickets for them, you know, and the, that they owe money for. And, you know, he can't get anywhere with women. And he hooks up with Billy Bob Thornton, who plays as like sort of this motivational speaker slash self-help guru slash pickup artist type who basically says, you just got to, you know, treat women like crap and the rules don't apply, you know, break everything, confront people and throw out your morality. And, and this is how you, you know, actualize yourself. And then the movie cuts that message with some irony and some 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 and tempers it but it's still there and it's kind of there in the hangover movies too where there's you know it's it's ultimately a film about 
people who find a place where they, they're not pinned in by normal, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas and they're not pinned in by acceptable behavior. Uh, War Dogs, which I think is one of his best films, is also about put upon characters who become, well, one put upon character and one, one who's not, but who, you know, finds a way out of his put upon status by becoming an arms dealer. And Joker is of a piece with those, and especially of a piece with Philip's first film, which he made as a student filmmaker, a documentary called Hate It, which I actually, a film I like quite a bit. It's got a lot of raw power to it. It's a documentary about Gigi Allen, who's sort of a, you know, a cult figure within the punk scene who was known for performing nude and cutting himself and doing all kinds of gross behavior we don't talk about on family podcasts like this one. He passed um, away, right? He passed away, yes. Um, he passed, he was vowed to... Do we not talk about passing away on this uh, it's, family it's, podcast? It's a listen to the best show. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, or Judy Allen is a, is a frequently recurring uh, topic of discussion. But uh, he uh, sadly passed away before he could fulfill his lifelong dream of killing himself on stage. Uh, but he's also someone who's whole who had a philosophy which was basically you know the world's hypocritical i'm going to punk is the way out cutting myself on stage and doing all kinds of gross things we don't talk about on family podcast is uh my way of protesting that society so it, it really kind of he's an entertainer who blurs the line between violence and art in a way if todd phillips were to end his career with joker it would all be full circle so that's a long way of saying that if you watch a lot of Todd Phillips movies in a row, you will see connections that uh, you might not. Uh, it's not to make it not as great a departure as, as you might think. Hmm. Well, thanks for that, Keith, because I want that perspective because you because it was a surprise when this movie, you know, was first announced and, and we started seeing trailers and it's like, well, this is this very dark film from the guy who did three of the hangover movies. Like what is the, what's the story here? Like how, how do we get a handle on him as an auteur? And I thought, well, the hangover movies are increasingly dark as well. They get more violent, uh, as they go and, and nihilistic as they go along. But yeah, that's a whole other story in, in, in better, right? Better. No, I would say not, not so much, <laughs> not so much, but the film has, I mean, it's, it's ambitious. I mean, it is trying to figure out a way like of how do I make Taxi Driver through the studio system now? Mm-hmm. It's again, just, you know, it's through IP, you know? Um, and so it accomplishes that and it goes to some places that major studio movies of its kind do not go. I mean, it is it, particularly towards the end. There's a lot. The violence in the film is quite shocking. Um, quite graphic. And, and, very. and I am with Scott where I think it is ideologically confused where it's, you know, at one minute it's an indictment of Reagan era cuts to social programs and others likening to, uh, you know, left-wing protesters to terrorists and murderers. It's, right. it's, it's a very, uh, uh, there's a lot going on in this movie. Yeah, the politics I, of I think all really of those shifty. things are linked though. I think all yeah. of those things are linked by the, why is the world against me mythology, which mm-hmm. is uh, in which like everybody, basically everybody, but you is a bad guy. I, I think that that idea, like the whole Thomas Wayne plot line, uh, I think that's pretty ideologically muddled because I think it's ambiguous in a way that doesn't serve the film. Who's telling the truth there and what is meant by that whole plot line can be read a couple of different ways. And I don't think the film takes a stance on it. And while I, I often like ambiguity in films when it makes the film more more complicated or takes it out of like a neat little box of a familiar kind of storyline. In this case, I'm not entirely convinced that Todd Phillips knows what the truth is here or cares what the truth is. And that to me makes the film just sort of more confusing. It doesn't take away from the feeling of everybody's against him. Like his mother's against him. She's hidden these dark secrets. His 
maybe father is against him. And it doesn't matter whether that person is his father, because the point is, he's rich and powerful and has things that Arthur doesn't have. Uh, The talk show host is against him. He's laughing at him. And he has uh, the power in the audience that uh, Arthur wants. Like the, his clown boss is laughing at him. Like everybody is laughing at him, but in the wrong way. Like not the way he he wants to be laughed at with appreciation and joy. The whole film to me feels like a persecution fantasy. And within that, I think any form of, and that group of people is also the bad guys, like just fits under the same giant umbrella. And the whole point of the film is learning not to care uh, which, again, is just embracing nihilism in a very dark and depressing way. But the film doesn't necessarily commit to anything in the sense that it is all these fantasies and delusions that are sort of nested upon each other. I mean, like, there's this whole, there's this implication that, well, Keith got explained to me when we saw it at the end, that it's like maybe none of it happened. Yeah, that's also an that ambiguity I that I don't that. think serves the film at all. No, I, so I I'm not a crackpot. You, you saw that as a possibility, too, that the coda <laughs> suggests that everything that he's preceded got delusions it was just... With, he's got delusions within the very large... It's like, yeah. Come on, man. Well, I mean, I think once commit, the... commit. Once the Zazzy Beats plot line comes into focus, mm. you you are opening up just the possibility that like maybe none of this is true, mm. which I think means maybe none of it is meaningful. And that, I think, is a major flaw for the movie because the degree to which I appreciate it, like I appreciate its boldness. And maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. Maybe this is true, maybe this isn't. Isn't bold. That's mm. wishy-washy. That's studio horseshit, right? I mean, like, that's what studios do. Studio movies don't like to commit to a political point of view, certainly, right? Because they don't want to alienate one half of the audience. And so they give you this kind of mush. Joker's kind of like hits you with a big shovel full of ideological mush where you don't really know where it's coming from politically or ideologically at all. And that makes it a movie for everybody and but also not a very not a movie that's trying to express something that's particularly clear. I think the wishy-washiness is a problem in another way too. And 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 not that I wanted to see this, but there's ambiguity as to whether or not, here comes spoilers, uh, but whether or not Arthur kills uh, Sophie, uh, his love interest or love interest, quote unquote, played by Zazie Beetz and her child. There's, you know, he's, he breaks into their house. He's there. There's a tense confrontation and we never see what happens. And, had we seen that, I think we'd know how to feel about Arthur and we couldn't be sympathetic toward him. But because it removes that moment or doesn't show us that moment and lets us think maybe he killed her, maybe he don't, or maybe you can just forget about it. I think it's kind of an odious element of this. It is, you know, it makes us, it really does make him the hero no matter what horrible things he does, as long as we don't see him do anything too horrible. You know, you can watch this movie and think that everyone he takes out deserves it. In his mind, they do. And, you know, the movie is enough, like, you know, aligned with his way of thinking, especially by the end of it, that I think we're supposed to think that as well. And then by not resolving the thing with Sophie, it removes something that would complicate our feelings about that. I have to admit, I never read that part as ambiguous. I feel like if the movie doesn't show us him in some way attacking her, it didn't happen. And Mm. because the movie wants so badly for us to sympathize with him. I have to believe that it didn't happen. We never see her again. We just see him. Well, that's because the entire movie is about his persecution complex. And once she's proven not to be part of her life, she ceases to matter. She, Mm. neither the fantasy version of her nor the real version of her has any kind of like agency or humanity or, or character 
to speak of. Like she's really only there to service his his story needs one way or the other. So it doesn't surprise me that Phillips completely forgets about her the second she becomes irrelevant. And it also, I mean, it bothers me in a larger sense, but it doesn't bother me in a sense of thinking he murdered her. But that's almost, again, sort of a lack of discipline on the film's part, because it's like, if you think about it in comparison to Taxi Driver, the ability on Scorsese's part to stick quite rigorously to Travis's point of view and show us the world as he sees it, not as the way he it is, that's not something that Joker does. And so it kind of leaves us stranded in, in moments like that, and it leaves us stranded generally trying to figure out what its perspective is on the city in this environment. And it, it's, it's, it's very strange. It just it doesn't work at all for me. I don't know. I, I really I appreciated that the film is audacious in a way but um so little of it resonated with me and i just and i really find the first two-thirds of the film to be just boring for the yeah most part. I, at one point i was like when's he gonna do joker stuff yeah. <laughs> you know you just wanted to get the fireworks, the fireworks factory, factory. And right. I, I don't think it's that really compelling a picture of alienation beyond what phoenix is doing on the screen at any given moment i think that the circumstances they set him up in um, and the journey that I take him on is, you know, it's it's not particularly compelling without that performance, but it does have that performance. So it is, it is yeah. you know, Phoenix is never, never, never uh, someone you can dismiss. Where's the wit, though? I mean, this is, I mean, Phillips is a comic director. I mean, Taxi Driver is a funnier film than Joker by a long shot, you know? Mm. I mean, in, in, in so much of the comedy in that film just gives it that extra bit of life. I think of like moments in the film that in Joker that where he's kind of going for a laugh kind of that are just kind of either lost or just tasteless. I mean, just like the fact that you know, a little person can't reach the lock on the door. It's just like, man, and this is cruel. You know, and that's your cruelty. That's not, again, that's yeah. not, that's not coming from Arthur's perspective. That's you, Todd Phillips making kind of a crappy joke. Yeah. And like, I, you know, I, I, I don't even know if we need to bring this into it, but um, uh, the audience reaction to this film made me really uncomfortable when we saw it. Uh, audience loved that. They loved some of the kill the kills. and, and... That varies hugely by audience, though. Yeah. I, I was reading a thread about this on Twitter because somebody uh, posted on Twitter that like in their audience people were like laughing like loudly and openly and cheering at the kills and wanted to know if other people were experiencing this because it made it more disturbing. Uh, and a lot of different people chimed in about their experiences and some of them saw it in a dead silent theater. Mm. Some of it, some of them saw it in a theater where people uh, made uncomfortable or unhappy noises during some of those moments. It does seem to be like a, a very different experience depending on who you see it with. And I like as well, I've had really uncomfortable experiences like that, too, particularly with Quentin Tarantino films. You can't point to the vibe of the audience and necessarily say this is a bad movie because this no. audience reacted. No, I hate, I hate to well, do that. Well, and I would advise people never to see A Clockwork Orange with a Midnight Audience. Oh, boy. Mm. Oh, yeah. Because I've yeah. done that. But I did that before in college, and that was an unforgettably bad experience. Yeah. So I have to admit that I would like this movie a lot more if King of Comedy did not exist because <laughs> sure. it is very hard with a movie this derivative to not be making comparisons on a a moment by moment scene by scene character by character basis. And Rupert Pupkin is scary without trying so hard to be scary. Like yeah. he, I, he doesn't think he's scary. No, he doesn't think he's scary, but the movie is very aware that he is because he's a he's an unstable threat to society 
and that's seen as a frightening thing. I feel like here, Arthur is an unstable threat to society, and Todd Phillips thinks that's a thrilling thing. Mm-hmm. And I think in moments it is. Like, that scene where he dances on the the staircase is just a a portrait of liberation that I find compelling, even if it's a terrible liberation from some very cartoonishly drawn bad things that happen to him. Uh, I just, I, I like the way it's shot. I like the moment. Uh, I don't love the music cue that's involved. But there's just, there's something about it. There's, it, it taps into that dance like nobody's watching uh, kind of emotion to me. And I, I take it it didn't hit you guys that way at all. Not that scene in particular, but I'm thinking about how I can be on board with art that has fairly horrific sentiments if the art's there. Like I'm thinking about Straw Dogs, which I think is a remarkably powerful movie, and I think probably wholeheartedly agree, disagree with what it's saying on every possible level. I just think the art has to be strong enough, and I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not sure the artfulness is strong enough here. Yeah, I think that's probably a good point for sure. I agree with that. So you guys have both complimented Phoenix's performance um, yeah. within this film. How are you going to feel if he he does end up being like a really big part of awards season? Like, are you going mm. to be okay with that out of respect for the performance? Or are you going to think that like a pretty terrible film is being like elevated to, to conversation status? I'm just, this podcast aside, I'm tired of talking about Joker. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I kind of think yeah, this is this is maybe the last time I talk, I want to talk about Joker ever. Uh, but um, if, if it's an awards season mix obviously we'll be talking well, about joker a lot more for a longer time but whatever the problem the, you know? the problem specific to this year is that he will have to have overcome maybe the strongest best actor field in years years who, who do you see in the as well adam driver in marriage stories i haven't seen big it yet. one uh, oh, uh, man, um, good, um you know jonathan price and uh the two popes is really great um there's just a, it just goes on and on and on there's the list of possible best actor nominees this year is just um, immense it's like you know it's, it hasn't been that strong recently but not but this year is going to be it's, it's going to be a real fight i mean not to get switch into oscar prognosticator rule sure. which i'm not even that good at but I, i'm not sure that the warmth for this film will be strong enough no nah, no nah, it's too it's a little bit it, it kind of took a hit when it actually came critics. out and you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, like, saw because you know it, it it was well received for the most part with a couple of exceptions out of venice mm-hmm. and then it landed here and uh, a lot of pretty prominent critics gave it a thumping, and it's kind of a little hard to recover from that. But at the same time, again, if we're going to use the Taxi Driver model, I mean, Taxi Driver won a major film festival, which was Cannes. It won the Palme d'Or. It was massively controversial for its day. I mean, we didn't have that amplifying effect of Twitter or something like that. I mean, things every controversies can get blown up in a way that now that they couldn't have been in 1976, but it, it survived that controversy and was a Best Picture nominee. So there is a path for it to find its way there. There is precedent for a movie like this to find its way there. But I, I do feel like it just doesn't have enough support to be taken seriously at that level. But I think Joaquin Phoenix will certainly be taken seriously. And it's a good performance. I wish... He had an opportunity to be a little wittier with it. Again, that's more the film's fault than his. There's a bit where he's preparing to go on to De Niro's show, you know, the talk show, and he's kind of imitating different entrances and stuff. And I kind of wished for more moments like that. I really kind of like that moment when he's sort of practicing his his entrance and then when he actually gets there and the tweaks that he makes to it. He actually does a very dynamic entrance before th- things uh do, do go not so great um for everyone but um 
I wish it had a little more wit to it. That's not Phoenix's fault that it doesn't, I don't think. All right. Well, that wraps up this part of the show. We'll be right back after this break to talk about the connection between Joker and the Dark Knight. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Let's start with Gotham City. These are two different takes on Gotham City, one of which looks like, as we said, a lot like Chicago circa 2008, uh, <laughs> one of which looks a lot like the New York of you know Nightmare circa 1981. I think it is explicitly 1981. What role does the city play in each of these? I mean, in Joker, the role of the city is mostly just to be like a grimy David Fincherian hellscape. Mm-hmm. Like I... I, I really feel like he had to have been looking at David Fincher movies to produce yeah, something. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To produce something this like dirty and underlit and where everything just has a sort of uh, like sheen of grossness over it. A fair bit of Dark Knight happens above cities, both Hong Kong and uh, quote unquote Gotham, uh, Chicago, or or during the day, like the, the scene that you cite where... Um, where Bruce Wayne saves the guy that's trying to blackmail him and out him by ramming his Lamborghini into a truck, like takes place under the L tracks in broad daylight in a very, very Chicago visual locale. You can't resist filming under the L tracks if you film in Chicago. Can yeah, you? It's just, it's sort of required or, you Filmmakers, know, go to Lake street filming uh, on the L tracks in, uh, in many cases. But uh, yeah, I, it seems like dark Knight also a fair bit of it takes place for instance, in, gorgeous penthouse apartments or glittering high rises like where that party takes place like there's very much a sense of uh the rich people living above it all whereas the gotham of arthur fleck doesn't really feel like that you know when when he goes and tries to track down thomas wayne it feels like he has to go a long way out of town to a country estate out of like britain somewhere almost (laughs) you know big extensive uh fence and gigantic grounds and gardens it doesn't really feel like the city to be fair wayne manor's relationship with gotham city is always (laughs) a little peculiar in any version of batman yeah i did not really appreciate the look of joker all that much because it felt so second hand you, you mentioned fincher but there's of course the taxi driver thing too of the steam rising up from the manholes you know suggesting hell below right so that was so such a strong distinctive visual element of the scorsese film that he just kind of takes like a lot of other things <laughs> from him and then he just he just lays on, on everything so thick i mean the sound especially is like you're constantly getting train noise or police sirens and then of course there's a garbage strike yeah. and it's just like there's uh, it's just and it's not just rats it's super it's just, rats it's super rats right it's just like it's everything and it's just like it's so on it's so not specific i mean what i appreciate about the look of dark knight is the this somewhat audacious choice not to mask the fact that it's chicago really that it's a it's an american city a contemporary american city it's not this unfamiliar place that is it is recognizable and it's that so feeds into the relevance of the movie and what it's actually you know the fact that he's trying to comment on something that's happening right now so i I kind of appreciated just the lack of dressing that happens with the dark knight so in both films the depiction of the city is very much tied to social commentary and some thoughts on human morality and human behavior in general how would you contrast these films take on what it means to try to live a a fulfilled existence in the middle of the city. So I think Dark Knight is interesting in part because it tries to take up so many big moral questions. And I feel like 
it comes to very different conclusions about them. And one of the ways that that manifests for me is the whole strange business of Lucius Fox and his sonar creation, the phone update that he creates that can create a sonar, which is perfectly fine when he's using it to spot for Batman in a building that he wants Batman to break into and illegally forcibly extradite a criminal. But somehow when he... Uh, puts it on a whole bunch of phones, it becomes incredibly immoral, which Lucius then says, this is incredibly immoral and we're not going to do this. Except for this once when we're totally going to do this. (laughs) But if it should ever be useful again, we wouldn't do it. And I'm not going to do it this time unless we get to blow it up afterwards. But then they go ahead and use it and it's really useful. And he's angry because they're spying on like three million people, except they're not because they're not actually paying attention to any of that content whatsoever. It's a great big moral morass that makes no damn sense whatsoever, as far as I'm concerned. But there are a bunch of different like moral questions in Gotham about, you know, about morality, about whether people can be trusted, about mob mentality, about vigilanteism. Whereas I feel like Joker has the one big moral message and is that's like, is everybody evil and is it okay if I kill him? <laughs> yeah, it kind of sums it up. Really. <laughs> he does it, like, I was going to say, is, is there any kind of more morality in Joker? And it definitely seems to be, as you say, a film about how morality is an illusion. And that's a strong statement to make. I'm just not sure it makes it all that effective effectively or ways that don't make me kind of sick to my stomach to think about <laughs> yeah i just i don't even know if i thought about uh, until just now <laughs> even thought about joker in those terms in terms of morality as being like a like a theme or something that, that the film is wrestling with in any way well, i mean you know good behavior gets punished and bad behavior at you know doesn't, it doesn't get rewarded but usually it doesn't really matter because you know everything nothing matters right I mean, the indifference of the rich to the poor is a big thing in Joker. That's true. That's true. And it manifests in a lot of different ways from Thomas Wayne punching Arthur in the gut for like bringing this issue to him and and basically just saying he wanted a hug down to the fact that social services are being cut to the Mm. point where Arthur can't get the meds that he needs to not be insane. So... Like there is a morality at work there. It's just a a gigantic malign, like universal morality that picks on people like Arthur that and and his mother too, I suppose. If his mother's experience is reflecting reality at all, she was probably forcibly committed by a very rich man who could afford to fake some paperwork in order to put her away. Mm-hmm. And that's and a terrible fake, thing. Fake adoption. Yeah. If it's if it's true, it's a terrible thing. The movie doesn't really let you know whether it's true or not. So it's hard to say who she's being done wrong by and and where the moral message is there. But there is a sort of moral message throughout Joker that the powerful pick on the insignificant and like the insignificant have sort of a moral right to fight back. Whether you like that message or not, it Mm. does seem to be the moral question that Joker is interested in. Fair enough. Something, uh, yeah. Again, I I didn't have occasion to think about it, and I do. So, I mean, do any of the the moral questions in Dark Knight hit particularly home with you? Like, does the whole spying on people via cell phone thing? But I I do like the idea that they are questioning themselves in using this technology and how far they can go. That ends up having to be a kind of a nuanced discussion about, like, where do you draw that line between something that is necessary for, you know, the safety of the people and what is crossing the line into something that's more in- invasive. I mean, and, and it's and they're in the position where they're 
they're the ones making this decision and the people who are being spied upon are not are unaware <laughs> unaware of that decision and, and so there's a lot there's some weight to it but I, I appreciate that the film dives into those questions and, and doesn't necessarily have a clean philosophy in terms of where that line should be or where it should be drawn I mean it's interesting it's in a nice gray area I don't know I mean to me bringing up a moral question like is it okay to use this potentially invasive technology if it's saving lives and to have the answer be no, it absolutely is not except this one time is like, it's a huge moral failing. But again, if we're talking about this film as being about terror and the war, perhaps the war on terror, I mean, that that's definitely questions that we've been asking ourselves like crazy in terms of the NSA and, and uh, the government taking a, a stance that it has more of a right to surveil in order to protect the people. I'm not saying it's an irrelevant question. I'm saying it's incredibly badly handled. (laughs) I'm saying that the good guys make the determination that it is never okay to use this uh, technology except right now because it'll save lives. Well, you know what? It's going to save lives next week too, but we blew it up. They're not 100% good though. Ah, I see. They're they're 99% good, but there's the 1% that uses it. They're less percentage than 99%. Right? These are not, these are not like the Batman? You know, clean cut. I think he's a good guy. Yeah, I, I think he is meant to be pretty pretty unquestionably a good guy. Now, uh, now here's an interesting uh, moral question that the Dark Knight takes up. Uh, at the very beginning, you've got a bunch of ersatz Batman. And I think just because of the Batman mythos, you can sort of draw the line that their existence is a bad thing because they use guns. That's being portrayed as the line between, like, d- despite the fact that also he says... Really, also, they're really bad at it. <laughs> well, he, they would be better at it if they weren't up against Batman. We don't really get to see a whole lot of, like, what they're like as Batman before mm. Batman takes them down. They're maybe not good against dogs, but as we see, he's not so great against dogs either. He Man, needs an upgrade. You, you edit that movie, and it's really just about Batman fighting dogs. He, kind he fights of so is. many dogs in that movie. And he, and he throws a bunch of those dogs to their presumed no, death. I didn't like that. Also, I never quite got how Joker ended up with those dogs. I guess he, he kills off the uh, the thug who had the dogs, and then the, the dogs are like, oh, we, we need to hang with you. Like, you're you're the new alpha or something. That's kind of how the, the gangsters are too, though. <laughs> yes, but the gangsters are thinking beings that have not been trained. Yeah, well. Well, maybe they have been trained. Who knows? The, the the point is, while Batman says the difference between him and all of these other vigilantes is that he's not wearing hockey pants, mm-hmm. uh, presumably the actual difference between them is they they have guns and are presumably willing to shoot and kill people. Do you think that there is a really, like, a significant reason, like, he takes them all out, basically just for, like, in the exact same way that he takes out the criminals there. He puts them all in the same category. Like, is this a moral question that we should be addressing? Is it okay for other people to be vigilantes too? And if so, who? I think in general, I mean, it does raise the uncomfortable question that, you know, he is an extra, you know, extra judicial force that the police force itself has become semi-comfortable with. I mean, it's kind of an oddity at that Batman stories had to grapple with and at various points in comics, he's been kind of an out, you know, outcast from the law and other times he's shown up at, at, at the police, uh, police station helping them out. But I think it kind of connects to Joker in, in an interesting way here too, because the subway shooting is, is 
clearly supposed to be reminiscent of the Bernard Goetz shooting of the 80s, which raised all kinds of questions about uh, you know, self-defense and, and how much, you know, how much vigilantism are, are we going to allow? So I feel like that question is, does carry over in some, in some interesting ways here. One of many things that's Joker apart is that it is an origin story. It is the Joker, who he is and how he came to be. Um, whereas the origin of the Joker is purposely blurry in the dark night. Does that, I, mean, I think that really is kind of at the heart of how, you know, the difference between how these films define the character. One chooses not to define him in any way beyond his actions and how he responded to them. And the other one, and Joker defines him entirely by showing us how he, you know, how the Joker happens in the first place. And I think that is itself is, is interesting contrast as are the performances. So why don't we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, the Joker's like poor Arthur Fleck. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We must understand where he came from in this terrible situation where he's constantly being bullied and, and, uh, kicked around and uh and then we learn all all about his mother and there's a lot of disturbing revelations there we we learn about how the mental health system is completely failing him and it's like that so the his origin story is all about us feeling bad for him and kind of and identifying with him and then him going on a murderous rampage and so where where does our where does our identification end you know i don't like to think about what kind of impact this movie is going to have. Cause a lot of times that conversation gets overblown at the time. I was actually just writing about fight club today. And that kind of came up again in my head. It's just like, it was one of those movies like do the right thing was this way too. It's like people thought like at the time, this is going to incite trouble. This is going to be explosive. This is going to be a powder keg. This is going to go off. And I think when you get away from the heat of the film's release and get enough distance from it, to kind of really understand what it's trying to do or, or, or something like it, it becomes more palatable and easier to talk about. But then at the same time, I remember leaving Joker the second time I saw it. I've seen it twice. Incredibly telling Keith, like, you know, if you're an AR 15 stroking incel loser, I mean, like this is your favorite movie, right? I mean, this you like, you, you're going to really dig this movie. And, you know, I couldn't, I, you know, so that part of me, that's my hottest take on the movie. <laughs> on the film and I've been trying to kind of distance myself from my own take because I feel like that's probably not fair because I don't want to think about this movie in terms of incitement but I also think the film is irresponsible and it's play- and it's kind of juggling with lit sticks of dynamite and it doesn't know what he's you know doing so very clumsily is there a world where Joker could actually be seen as an origin story for the Dark Knight Joker Leaving yes. aside, leaving aside the the age difference for a moment, because the age difference is a weird yeah, aspect yeah. of Joker. No, but it, no, but in terms of narrative continuity, absolutely, absolutely, I think it could. But I think we need more mm-hmm. years for this Joker to just, you know, turn into this nihilistic beast that that uh, Heath Ledger ends up playing. Right? I disagree with you because I feel like these are two very different characters. I don't mm. think this one turns. I don't think Arthur Fleck turns into the Dark Knight Joker. I think Arthur, Arthur Fleck is a disturbed, impulsive individual with very little control over his actions. And the Joker in Dark Knight is is a master planner. Yeah, you're and, right. And, he's not. He's, he, and. And who has a philosophy? I mean, you know, the maybe he developed it over the course of the twenty-five years it took uh, Baby Batman to turn into grown-up <laughs> Batman. I just, I just don't see, I just don't see enough connective tissues there. I think they're two very different interpretations of of the character. Maybe I just, maybe I just think in terms of just a worldview. 
you could see Joker's worldview in uh, corroding to the point where he would become. Uh, but in terms, well, you're right in terms of like he's not that smart and he's not a very good planner. No, and he, he, and he wouldn't have the. He's not. He he is the opposite of a criminal mastermind. And and he doesn't have a point of view. He he just has feelings and emotions and reactions and disturbing actions that he takes. He has enough of a ability to plan to like show up on the talk show with a gun. Yeah. Uh, but even then, it's you know he seems to be planning to do something else with the gun than what he actually ultimately does with the gun up until the moment he fires it at Robert De Niro. I hated that moment so much. God. It's a good gore effect, though. It is, but it's just I just thought, like, especially the connection to King of Comedy, I just thought, this is yeah. this sucks. He's killing a hero here. It's bad. <laughs> no, it's a Rupert Puppet. It's not a hero. But I'm just, it just felt like, I don't know. It was just, it, it, uh, this movie references Scorsese so much in ways that are both obvious and then in that case kind of tasteless. So we started this connection discussion talking about different depictions of the city. And it occurred to me as you were talking about it, we see, apart from that gala that he gets to, and of course the glimpses we get of, of Wayne Manor, we see, we don't see the city from top to bottom in Joker the way we do in Dark Knight because Arthur is incapable of going from top to bottom. He really just knows he just knows a lot of such those streets where everyone's going out of business and, you know, there's there's muggers and uh, these rundown theaters. Uh, so we definitely get a different glimpse that way. And I think that kind of speaks to at least, you know, what the Joker's trying to say about class or at least trying to take on the subject of class. It does turn into ultimately class warfare at the end. But um, does Dark Knight have an interest in class? It really does seem to be interested more in you know, corruption and crime in fairly abstract ways versus what the actual causes are. Yeah, I don't think that Dark Knight has that much of an interest in the causes of crime or in the gap between the rich and the poor. I do think it kind of has that cinematic, like that Hollywood glamour where you're spending time with beautiful rich people in uh, extremely expensive settings. And anytime you set foot out of that world, everything starts ringing a little hollow and false. You know, suddenly when, when you're at the a press conference or when you're out in public during the funeral parade, uh, suddenly you're dealing with like a mass of easily scared, easily angered individuals who are extremely inconsistent uh, and can't be trusted. You're, you're dealing with a, a mindless mob. And again, the fairy scene is sort of the payoff for that because it, it kind of repudiates the idea that the common people are idiots. But there's an awful lot in the rest of the film that kind of suggests that the common people are idiots and that people like, I mean, even Harvey Dent's entire arc is kind of about, you know, where the, the people are easily swayed. So we have to give them this figure. Like we have to give them a complete unimpeachable figure if there's anything remotely wrong with him they'll turn on him in an instant because they can't be trusted uh there are a whole bunch of like you know panicky fools who need to be lied to and like force-fed a variety of pieces of pablum about how the world works or they're just they're going to make the wrong choices and there is sort of a classist bent to dark knight in that an awful lot of it really does seem to be about how the rich are manipulating the poor for their own good, how the powerful are manipulating the powerless because the powerless cannot be trusted or make the right decision if they have the truth. And that doesn't really sit well with me any more than uh, Joker's like vague, ragey, eat the rich idea does. Yeah, that's, it is It is an interesting study of contrast. I mean, everybody, all the all the important characters in Dark Knight are pretty well-to-do. 
I think. So Commissioner Gordon Lee is a pretty modest life. Yeah. And maybe, pretty, maybe that's important. I mean, maybe that's an important part of the movie too that he's that he's doesn't that he doesn't have the means that everyone else has. Yeah, you get the feeling that that Dent comes from money or has previously enjoyed some success before he became DA. Uh, Gordon's just as an honest cop. That's the best he can do. You yeah. know. I do love. You see it in in the first two movies and. I love the, his classic Chicago deck, the sort of the, the classic Chicago yeah. uh, uh, wooden staircase outside mm-hmm. the apartment building. Yeah. Classic Gotham City deck. God, sorry, Gotham City. <laughs> yes. and jo- I mean, Joker, that's one of the strengths of Joker is that it is class is something that's emphasized in a big way and, and um, accounts for a lot of, uh, or at least a portion of Arthur's alienation is the lack of care uh, that society and that institutions have for someone like him who's struggling so that classic uh, left-wing film joker (laughs) (laughs) it is sort of fun i mean i like one of the one of my favorite small dumb things about the entire batman mythos is the idea of you know bruce wayne super genius and mega inventor and flawless martial artist Occasionally, like playing the louche asshole who absconds with an entire uh, ballet on a boat on a whim for fun, <laughs> or sleeps yeah. through a, a like a really important merger meeting because you know he's lazy and or stayed up too late last night. And I feel like Dark Knight has some fun with that, uh, but at the same time, it does kind of like buy into this idea that people will excuse his behavior no matter what he does because he's rich. He's rich and powerful and handsome, and nobody calls him on on his behavior people occasionally uh you know talk to his employees about like that that's unacceptable but they don't confront him with it you know whereas arthur can't catch a break you know when he's beaten by hoodlums on the street with his own sign he's blamed for it and is told to pay for the sign (laughs) so there is sort of a contrast there just in terms of the rich lead privileged lives and uh you know the poor have to suffer through uh, the worst of everything with no recourse that kind of becomes an interesting contrast to the two films and then of course when uh arthur breaks it's to kill a bunch of rich assholes now again people are questioning whether that scene is true like whether it actually happens or if it happens the way he perceives it the sondheim part doesn't happen that's just it like the the sondheim part like glenn weldon specifically called that out as like (laughs) hilariously laughable yeah Yeah. but people are taking the fact that these wall street finance bros no sondheim be fair with all respect to glenn uh, that song was actually a pop hit for Frank Sinatra and others, so it's ch- very good chance they would have heard it outside of. There's not necessarily listen to a original they're, cast out. They're like 24 but. years old. Like, why are they? Why are? Why do they care what was a pop hit? Like, what? In, no, it's early 70s. In the, so you know, they, they would have heard this song growing up. It's 1981. They're 24 years old. They would have been on the radio when they were in, form, in formative years. I love it. Okay, so they're they're real and Drop they're jerks, the and he murders them because they deserve it. So we're back to class warfare, <laughs> open class warfare. Sure. I like that, Keith. We'll push back. Well, Glenn's probably right, though. <laughs> he does know a thing or two about... about ba- Batman the and bat- Sondheim? The, bat- yes. the Batman and Sondheim. That, that is pretty solidly much in his really like the intersections of two wheelhouses that have somehow crashed together as wheelhouses are not wont oh, to do. Oh, that metaphor is <laughs> crashing together. <laughs> 
Uh, on that note, it may be time to pull the plug on this conversation. Uh, the Dark Knight is available on DVD and Blu-ray and 4K, too, if, if you're fancy. Uh, and from all the usual streaming services, Joker is in theaters now, including 70 millimeter in some theaters, if you're lucky. It should, it should be there for a while. Uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? All right. Well, I'm going to mega cheat on this one uh, (laughs) because this is a film that I'm sure we would love to take up on this podcast. And I'm fairly sure that anybody listening to this podcast is already aware of and eager for. But uh, just because of scheduling, I don't think we're going to get to do it. So uh, I'm going to jump on it and talk it up. And that is uh, Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse, his follow up to The Witch, uh, which is it's pretty much a two hander between Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe as uh, two men maintaining a lighthouse uh, in the middle of nowhere, Nova Scotia, during a uh, a long cold season where things happen that might be real and might not be real. There are a lot of ways to, to read this movie. Now, all of the complaining that I did about the ambiguity in Joker, I'm going to turn around and point at the lighthouse and say that there's some significant ambiguity that goes on in the lighthouse, and it absolutely works for me. Maybe this film is uh, a fantasy. Maybe it's a drama, uh, a very mainstream drama. Um, maybe it's a fairy tale. Maybe it's not. There are a lot of ways to read it. But no matter how you read it, you're going to read it as a Robert Eggers film, which is to say impeccably controlled, Mm -hmm. uh, incredible performances, long, slow, quiet burn, uh, like just pretty much masterful handling of mood. And in the end, some some very startling and intense things that happen. I saw it at Fantastic Fest, where people walked away, I think, wanting, wanting more, wanting maybe more violence, more color than there was. And I don't mean that physically, because it's a black and white movie. (laughs) But like wanting it to be weird, And I think instead it's just intense. And I think that maybe Robert Eggers' movies are fated to have people say, well, I wanted that to be weirder. Um, Pretty weird. I wanted that to be more genre-y than it actually Mm. is. Well, maybe because uh, that certainly happened with the witch. But in in terms of performances, like you were you were bringing up, what an incredible year this is going to be for best leading male performances. Uh, both of these guys, I think, give pretty incredible performances. And uh, I just, I love the way it built over time. Um, I loved the look of it. Eggers constructed the lighthouse uh, because, of course, he did, you know, just for control purposes to get the look that he wanted. Uh, He filmed mostly with natural light and mostly outside during real storms rather than manufacturing things. Like an awful lot of what you're seeing on the screen is, is quote unquote real. Uh, like physically manufactured, created. And the movie is just an experience. It comes out in limited release on uh, October 18th. So again, I just don't think we're going to get to it. Scott, you're nodding a lot. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of this movie. It, it is, and uh, you just immediately remember, I, or at least I did when I was watching it, it was like, oh yeah, this is Robert Eggers' film. Because it's <laughs> like, the dialogue is full of turns of phrase and bits of language that are antiquated and that he's obviously done a tremendous amount of research on. It's super intense. It isn't really defined, as you say, by any one genre or another, uh, which is a, a positive quality, in my opinion. 
and uh, and I I have to say, no human being on earth has has had more fun doing anything than Willem Dafoe has playing this role. <laughs> I mean, he's just he just makes it an absolute meal out of it, and he and uh, it's just infectious. And I think Pattinson is uh, is equally good. I had a, I had a great time with this film, and um, and I think if you you get on its wavelength, that uh, you should too. Yeah, getting on its wavelength is going to be really important. Much like with The Witch, don't go in expecting any one specific yeah. thing and just be prepared to be patient because it's a it's a very quiet film in the early going. It's very much about the environment and the mood and not about dialogue. It takes a while for the relationship between these two men to get up and rolling. Yeah. And until it does, it's not about words and it's not about what they say to each other until it is. It's just about the world and the mood that Eggers creates. So yeah, go in and let it take you. And don't go with impatient people who are just waiting for the damn witch to show up. So (laughs) Robert Eggers, The Lighthouse. Keith, what about you? I haven't seen it yet. He built a lighthouse. Oh, I meant Keith. What about you? Pass. No, I know, I know, I, I know what you meant. I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just stuck on this whole building a lighthouse thing. Yes, he uh, built I got, a lighthouse. I got two recommendations for you. I'll, I'll take Genevieve's since she's not here. Uh, one is an episode. So I enjoy this podcast called Imaginary Worlds, which is a, a biweekly podcast about science fiction and fantasy and and various topics related uh, to that. It's it's quite good, and I would recommend you check it out. But this is actually. The host enjoyed an episode of another podcast so much he kind of you know just kind of subbed it in for for one of this shows to help promote it and that's a po- episode of the podcast called Twenty Thousand Hertz which is about recordings and sound recorded sound basically I think it's sort of the broad topic I need to dig into it more because I've only heard this one episode but it's great it's an episode called The Bouge and it's all about movie trailers and it's all about the booge and the blah, the noises that kind of uh, have have taken over movie trailers in recent years. And it's also kind of throws in the history of, you know, where trailers come from. Did you know they're called trailers? Because they used to be at the end of movies. I oh. actually did not know yeah, that. Yeah, I didn't either until I heard this podcast. Anyway, it's very good. So it's episode, uh, seek out an episode of either Imaginary World or 20,000 Hertz called The Booge. I don't, I don't think you'll regret it at all. I think anyone listening to this podcast would enjoy that topic. The other thing is I'm working on a piece for Vulture uh, tied to the Criterion box set of Godzilla movies that's coming out, which collects all the Godzilla films for for a certain period, from the first wave of Godzilla films from 1954 to 1975. And, you know, we've covered Godzilla on here before, uh, and that's that's a great movie. And I'd seen a lot of these movies as a kid, and to me, they all blur together into like one big kaiju film that I have no idea what happened in each. So it's been kind of a revelation to go back and watch them individually. So if you pick up this box set, or uh, if you have the Criterion Channel streaming service, not all of these are on the, there, but some of them are. If you're looking for, you know, the best is obviously Godzilla. Watch Godzilla, it's so good. Listen to our episode about Godzilla and watch it again. But if you're looking for that sweet spot, like the really thing, like the sort of the classic uh, kaiju, you know, space age, giant creatures clashing here's the ones to go for skip king kong versus godzilla because it has just been it's been disappointing audiences with you know, <laughs> the, by failing to live up to its promise since 1963 but the one after that mothra versus godzilla is excellent Ghidorah, the three-headed monster is excellent and invasion of astro monster is not quite as excellent but also very good and they're they're very fun you know you, you know what you know what godzilla movies are but but these are the these this is the, the sweet spot right there 64 to 65 is when it was just really d- delivering it. and and my favorite detail actually is invasion of astro monster in which aliens come to earth and ask to borrow 
Godzilla and another monster, Rodan, I believe, um, to go to their planet to fight Ghidorah, and the humans had to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, why would you? Of course, you can you can keep Godzilla. Godzilla <laughs> causes more problems than he solves most of the time. Although at that point, he actually had already become a beloved occasional defender of Japan and the rest of the world. Scott, how about you? What what Godzilla films do you recommend? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to shift uh, gears a little bit from that. But this is also kind of a thing. A lot of times uh, my re- recommendations are around projects that I'm working on as well. And uh, I, I'm working on two different projects involving Noah Baumbach. I'm doing a, a list for Vulture. Then I'm, gonna, I'm doing a, a big essay piece for the New York Times. God bless hopefully that will turn out okay <laughs> um anyway um but it gave me occasion to just go back and re and run the series and watch everything he'd done before and i and i'm going to insist as i always have insisted that his 1997 romantic comedy mr jealousy gets short shrift it's quite a good film and uh, and something that people should seek out on Amazon Prime, which is which is on currently, or if you don't have it somewhere else, it's just what's interesting about it to me is that Baumbach wasn't fully himself at that point. You know, I think he kind of found himself a little bit with Squid. And the, I mean, Kicking and Screaming is a great movie too, but like with Squid and the Whale, it was like he found kind of a personal style and a you know a personal way of making films, and and he became Noah Baumbach in a way. Mr. Jealousy is in, takes a lot of those feelings that he, he was having, a lot of these themes, and processes it through genre, specifically like like old fashioned screwball comedy. And it's a, it's stars uh, Eric Stoltz as as someone who who's in a relationship with Annabella Shiora, and um, he has this he's had this habit, this problem throughout his relationships of of being jealous of past lovers and he locks into one of shiora's past lovers uh an author played by chris eigman uh who you, you'll know from all of the Whit stillman movies and they end up taking this he ends up going to group therapy <laughs> with this character it's such a funny film i mean it's such a funny kind of like premise to have them in group therapy together and it gets even funnier when his friend he goes as his friend Vince, right, played by Carlos Jaco, and Vince is really excited to kind of get information from this to actually benefit from this therapy that he's not going to. And when Stoltz sort of decides to leave, then Vince also joins the the therapy. And it's just this it's this wonderful kind of screwball situation. But at the but at the same time, it speaks to something that's quite true, and that you know this is a film that came out the same year as Chasing Amy. Uh, a film I didn't like that got far more praise, and they were both basically about the same thing, which is about the nature of pathological male jealousy of of these hangups of these guys who just can't kind of let, you know, acknowledge the fact that their partner has 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 a sexual history, you know, and it's it's and the difficulties they, difficulties they have in letting that go. Um, I just think Mr. Jealousy handles it with so much more deftness and wit, and um, and it's just kind of a a unique little transitional film for. Bombach that doesn't get a lot of love or and uh, deserves it I think I like it and I and I, I like Hickey and Screaming a lot too and it's interesting it's interesting career because he did those two movies and then this movie no one's seen except for me maybe you would say called I, Highball, I Highball yeah. um, and and then he kind of just goes away for like you know eight years <laughs> and, and and I I, I with a couple of exceptions I pretty much loved all the films he's made since the Squid and the Whale. Um, but I kind of wonder what would happen if he'd been able to con- go down this route. Cause I think these are very sharp, 
warm, insightful comedies in a, in a much more traditionally comic style than his later films, some, some yeah. of which aren't comedies at all or just barely comedies. Um, so I wonder what, you know, I, I kind of wouldn't mind seeing the, fil- the films that that Baumbach would have made too. Yeah, this is, but I like the way he went. No, for sure. <laughs> he, for sure. He, he, and his career has had phases too that are kind of fun to get into. But, mm-hmm. And the new film is an absolute just masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, it's so it. good. Um, so, yeah, Mr. Jealousy. I'm into it. And that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. What's up next? With the highly anticipated show Watchmen debuting on HBO, we couldn't resist the opportunity to extend our pairing of The Dark Knight and Joker to include one more serious consideration of the superhero mythos. And no work on the subject is more respected than Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' mid-80s graphic novel, which unpacked the genre by imagining a group of morally ambiguous masked Avengers set loose in the United States. Where Moore and Gibbons' comic was preoccupied with the Cold War and nuclear arms, the TV show, created by Damon Lindelof, updates the material to the present day to address the plague of racism and white supremacy. In a special episode, dropping October 29th, we'll talk all things Watchmen, focusing on the first three episodes of the show. Then we'll be back the following two weeks with our usual pairings. We promise it will have nothing to do with superheroes, flawed or otherwise. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Dark Knight, Joker, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? You can find me at TheVerge.com, where I'm the film and TV editor, and you can find me over on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? You can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000. Um, I write for I write for Vulture, I write for TV Guide, I write for Polygon. I am going to be doing some stuff for Fangoria, which I'm very excited <gasps> about. Um, and I write for The Ringer. And oh boy, who else do I write for? Oh, so many places. Who don't you? That's right. And, and I don't believe you wrote an uh, article about a little show called Castle Rock oh, yeah, for, for a little publication Verge. called The Verge. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, and you can read that by the time this is out. And basically, if, if, if there's there's writing to be done, you can probably find me. Scott, how about you? Well, um, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find me on Peach as well. You can find my work at the uh, New York Times, NPR, uh, Vulture, and, and uh, other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. And I have one kind of exciting piece of news as far as that is concerned. By the time this podcast uh, drops, there, there there's a two-volume uh, Musings anthology uh, that you can purchase uh, featuring the very best work uh, that we have published on Musings, including a, a, a couple pieces by I'm, you? I'm in both one. volumes. Both volumes. Keith is in, in both volumes and, and just some incredible writing by some of my favorite critics, uh, you know, uh, uh, from, uh, you know, K. Austin Collins and, and uh, Alyssa Wilkinson and uh, and Stephen Goldman and uh, Matthew Desim. And this is a huge, you know, Angelica Bastian. This is a huge list of people. Um, Mike D'Angelo, big listener of the show, also in the first volume. So, 
um, yeah, so I'm excited about this. I've looked, I've obviously, I've edited the thing, so, so I've looked at it. It looks great, uh, but both of these volumes. And, um, uh, you know, I'm pretty proud of the pieces that we've been able to put together over the last four years. And I'm, I'm happy that Oscilloscope is, uh, has, has published this thing. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think they're doing it out of love of the game. It's not, I don't think it's something that, that is going to be, uh, you know, at your airport bookstore, but, um, but something you should definitely look out and you can certainly find on the Oscilloscope store at oscilloscope.net. Yeah. It's a great, you do a great job of that, that site, Scott. And like, and I think people listen to the show in part because they liked our old site, the Dissolve, and looking for places to get that Dissolve feeling. That's definitely one place that, that's, yeah. that's rich in that Dissolve feeling. Yeah. And I, what I like about it also is like, you know, especially toward the end, we were bringing in new writers, which I really like. But I feel like you kind of contribute, continue that discovery of and and you know bringing in uh, interesting voices. Thanks, I, I I appreciate that. And and ultimately, it was it was it exists because of uh, Dan Berger at Oscilloscope was a really big fan of the dissolve and um, and the spirit of the site and the fact that we did a lot of retrospective pieces, and that was kind of you know he wanted that to continue to happen and and wanted it to happen under his. Uh, under the oscilloscope umbrella, so it's it's been fu- a fun little ongoing side project that has now resulted in this book, or these two books, I should say. Um, so I'm excited about that. So that's that's what's going on with me. Um, and then we have a a, a fourth co-host. Yeah, what's the deal with her? Jennifer Kosky is his deputy TV editor at Vulture. You can find her on Twitter at at Genevieve Kosky, and you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake, Jakes, for his assistance producing the podcast, Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Send in the clowns. Those daffy, laffy clowns. Send in those soulful and doleful schmaltz by the bowl.